Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA, a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Thank you, Manny. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA, Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation, and past president for the PNA Southern California, and an adjunct faculty at Charles R. Drew University, Department of Medicine and Sciences. Manny? Thank you, Mindy. Our guest is Sherwin Imperio, DNP, PMH, and PBC, a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner with training and experience in treating adult patients with psychiatric conditions. He's president of PNA California Orange County Chapter. He's been ac actively involved with several PNAA projects involving mental health initiatives, helping to support Filipinos in the United States. In collaboration with the PNAA Kabalikat program, he has provided training to fellow PNAA leaders in developing support groups for their chapter members during this pandemic. He recently participated in the first virtual PNAA Balikturo 2022, which PNAA members and numerous Philippine-based nursing schools attended as he discussed mental well-being and help build resiliency. He writes blogs and uses social media platforms to promote mental health awareness. Good evening, Dr. Imperio. Welcome to Rise Up. Good evening, Manny and Mindy. Thank you for having me, guys. It's an honor being here in the podcast. So hopefully in the next hour, we're able to talk about mental health and anything else that will right. come up. Well, how do you want me to call you? Dr. Sherwin, Dr. Imperio, Sherwin? Well, uh, Sherwin is fine. You're not my patient, so Sherwin is fine. Yeah, no, it's either my patient or my students, but otherwise okay. Sherwin is fine for colleagues. It's well, not it's really deal. nice seeing you. I've not seen you for quite a while. So let me start. It's, it's been, been a, while. a while. Were you born here in the United States or the Philippines? Philippines, actually. I came here when I was 11 years of age. And unfortunately, I haven't really been back oh. since. Uh, the only time that I went back was last year, mm. last year, a year ago. So I've been basically growing up in the U.S. since I came I here. Do you mind me asking where in the Philippines, Sherwin? Uh, parents are originally from Bulacan, oh. and my mom grew up in Cavite. Tagalog. So I grew up in Bulacan. Yes, Both Tagalog. Them, Tagalog. Influent. <laughs> so. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Why did you choose a career in nursing? This is actually very unusual because I was never really someone who thought about nursing uh -huh. growing up. Um, I was pre-med. Oh. Uh, life happened. My mom actually was under the care of an, a hospice nurse and she was the one who kind of convinced me that perhaps at the time nursing was going to be something I should consider. And looking back now, that was almost 20 years ago. And as they say, this is where I'm at at the moment and likely where I'm going to be unless I decide to pursue med school. Mm, I see. 
Well, yeah. Sharon, the demand for mental health services must have been always been great. But how has it been since the onset of the pandemic? You know, uh, the pandemic has been really tough on a lot of people. And unfortunately, when people say that we're all in the same boat, that's really not a reality. Um, some of us are riding a small boat. Other people are in their yachts. Um, we have all been affected by the pandemic, as they say. However, the resources that we have have been very different. Um, some of us, unfortunately, have had to be furloughed or uh, be fired or laid off from work. Other people, like nurses, for example, have taken advantage of and actually, if they're willing, have made lots of money. Uh, however, the mental health of individuals that have been undergoing this whole pandemic has been very challenging. Um, I'll just kind of take it from my own practice. Lots and lots of people are on active wait lists just to be seen. I have not seen it where people are waiting three months out just to have someone see them for mental health reasons. Um, I do both. I do focus more so on medication management versus therapy. However, I do provide supportive therapy for my clients and those are more short term in nature. Um, it, it's just a challenge for so many people, and even people that are helping people are also having their own challenges. I see. So, Sherwin, um, mental health is a challenging subject in Asian American communities. Uh, why is that? I think part of that is the taboo that's uh, present in many Asian cultures or many cultures in general. Uh, I've not been really, I've not encountered any culture where people openly talk about it. Although the Western culture do talk about mental health, there is still that reservation about it. Um, however, more specifically for Asian cultures, uh, people will think that it's a sign of weakness, which has been one of the bigger factors of why people oftentimes will actually refrain from seeking treatment because they feel that people are going to judge them because it is a sign of flawed character. Uh, in some cases, people actually, and again, this is something that society can partially be blamed for because there is that stigma that people will often receive based on the diagnosis that they may have. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for Filipino cultures to have family members and don't even talk about them because of being weird or unusual. And in such cases, what happens is people often will not get the treatment that they rightfully deserve for fear that other members, even within their own family, will actually judge them and not look at them the same. I see. You know, many of us are facing challenges that can be stressful, overwhelming, and cause strong emotions in adults and in children. How does COVID-19 affect our mental health? Many of us are likely experiencing what's known as COVID fatigue, in which case we are just so exhausted day in, day out, especially healthcare workers, where they are seeing the, the masses of people since the very beginning of the peak of this pandemic. Uh, when it first started back in March, when we heard about COVID, March of 2020, uh, people thought maybe this is something that's going to be gone perhaps a year. And many of us did not really understand the gravity of what this pandemic was going to be. And I actually had looked up at the recent numbers at World Health Organization in where 
the number of confirmed cases for COVID passed 364 million cases globally. And of that, a little over 5.6 million had died with COVID and or complications from COVID. Um, nowadays, people are just so frustrated that why is it two years into this whole thing, it seems like things are not really getting much better the way we thought it would have been. Uh, yes, we do have vaccinations. Yes, we are seeing less and less people with perhaps minimal symptoms. However, those infection rates are getting higher and higher in certain parts of the world, or again, even in certain parts of the country in the U.S. Um, it's just one of those situations where, again, part of what I do is, yes, I focus on mental health, but I treat a patient holistically and where if I'm sensing that there's some issues that need to be addressed uh, physically, that's also something that I would address with the clients. So in your practice, Sherwin, did you see a pattern or, or how has COVID affected your patients? Was there a change in what you were seeing in the last two years? Absolutely. Um, I think many times people think that people with mental health issues are probably struggling more so than your people that do not have prior mental health issues before COVID. Um, in terms of the actual practice, what we have seen are exacerbations of people's symptoms. Those that have had um, conditions that are in remission uh, likely saw exacerbation and resurfacing of symptoms, in which point they either had to have medications adjusted, if appropriate, uh, also perhaps even receiving talk therapy. Um, for people that have never had any prior psychiatric history, you are seeing more and more people with symptoms of depression, anxiety, uh, grief, loss, depending on what's happening with those individuals and around them. Hmm. Well, were there challenges in the resources that our patient could tap during this period of time um, that you can share for our viewers or listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Challenges have been... Um, happening over the last two years, as I shared initially. Uh, we have patients that are waiting two, three months out just to be able to be seen. Before that wasn't the case. And with the rise of the pandemic, uh, you see people waiting. So I had a patient who told me that she waited five months just to have an evaluation. And that wasn't something that we saw before, uh, but something that we're seeing more and more just because of the scarcity and um, available resources for patients to access. Um, I'll tell you right now, like I said, I'm not a therapist per se, but uh, I do not know of any therapists that are accepting new patients at the moment because they're influxed with new patients. Uh, for those that are accepting new patients, the wait list, again, minimum that you're looking at is about three months. Or longer. With this mm -hmm. um, increase um, in, in the demand for your services, um, how has this affected you and your um, co-workers or, or the mental health professionals? How has COVID affected you? Uh, I, I know there's this uh, big demand for your services. And then, of course, with this big influx, uh, your your uh, services are, are being stretched and 
how has this affected you and and in the mental health professionals i think um what we need to realize is it doesn't matter who you are in healthcare we're also humans and that's something that i um have seen within our own teams of clinicians um sometimes you will see us just a little bit more short fuse than others um our tempers perhaps anxiety and again just really depending on what available resources you have to tap uh you may notice that you may not be spending more time with friends because again pandemic related um events um it, it's just a challenge altogether but one of the things that we have that works with us is the fact that we may be a little bit more knowledgeable in terms of what resources we are able to access and again the whole same boat not so much because with the resources that i have i may be able to actually do a little bit better than someone who doesn't have the same background as i do um and, and that's something that we have seen um day in day out with the people that i work with but don't get me wrong everyone is bombarded with just seeing patients left and right and I, i'm actually in a in a great position in where I can talk about seeing patients both in a private setting and also that of a community mental health because you see the polar opposites of the needs of the individuals receiving those types of services. Mm. So you mentioned a while ago about the long hours that you guys work, that the waiting time, the stress of um, handling a lot of patients. So what do you think are the tips that you can share with our viewers and listeners to manage and cope that job stress or burnout during this COVID pandemic? First and foremost is you really do have to take care of yourself. I'm a firm believer that people have to practice self-care. Practicing self-care means that you are taking care of yourself. If that means taking a pause in life and just kind of reflecting of where things have been over the last two years, um, doing simple things like planting a tree. Uh, some people like, uh, knitting, doing doing anything that you actually enjoy doing, that could be part of your self-care. And I think uh, if you were to ask me one specific thing that people can do to really improve their mental health and really increase their mental acuity, it would be practicing self-care on a regular basis. Uh, one of the analogies that I often use for people and how they're not so much taking care of themselves is that of a cell phone. Meaning, if I were to ask Mindy, how often do you charge your phone? Your response would be... Many times. <laughs> every day, at least every day. day. Let's go with it. <laughs> at least yeah. every yes. day, right? Yeah. In, in certain cases, what you would have are people charging their phones twice a day, three times a day, depending on usage. Uh, but then I ask you, when was the last time that you actually took care of yourself? Practice self-care. Um, so why is it, why is it that we take care of our phones? Exactly. If you have to really pause and think about when was the last time that you did something for yourself, then that means that you're long overdue. Mm -hmm. And in this situation, really, you have to say, you know what, why is it that I take care of my phone much better than I do of myself? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, uh, as you mentioned that, I'm thinking of our nurses. You know, our nurses, uh, obviously their job requires that they have to take care of these patients. And in these past two years, you know, 
with with the uh, surge, right, um, and and continuous uh, surge of, of patients with the variants that have come in, um, so they've become really very tired, right, of of uh, because uh, a lot of them are very frustrated. Um, we we still have these issues about uh, vaccine hesitancy. Uh, in some states, the vaccination rate are, um, you know, not even close to 70%. Plus, also being the nurse, when they go home, if somebody's sick, they have to take care of, of their sick family members too. So, which now begs the question, how much more do they have left to take care of themselves? Um, you, you know, that that's actually a very interesting question that you bring up, Manny. Um, we are all different people and we all have our different uh, levels of tolerance. Uh, in a situation where, again, just kind of with the three of us here, uh, Mindy can say that, yeah, no, that's that's part of my life is taking care of my loved ones, my family. Uh, I may be a little different because for me, I, I really do believe that I have to practice my self-care. And for me to be able to take care of other people to the level that I want, I need to make sure that I'm tip top shape. And unless I'm doing that, then I believe that I'm doing a disservice to the people around me. Obviously in emergency situations, then I would help out other people around me. But in what's been happening over the last two years with the pandemic, again, this is not gonna be going away anytime soon at this point. I need to make sure that if I'm gonna help out other people around, that I take care of myself first. And with that awareness and understanding that when you take care of yourself, it doesn't mean that you're selfish. It means that for both you and the people around you, that your emotions, your feelings are valid and that they are in fact a priority. You know, I, I always get anxious when my daughter's a respiratory therapist and um, she turned positive for COVID. And I'm a nurse. I should know how to react and cope with it, right? But what can I, what can I do mm -hmm. uh, to cope with that stress from my daughter or anyone else having COVID, positive for COVID, although the signs and symptoms yeah. are not as, as severe as others? I, I mean, again, this is more of an individual response. And I think really... When you sit down, you really reflect on what resources you have available. And for us, luckily, we do have that knowledge of what are some of the things that could potentially make things worse for this family member. And we have science backing us up that if you have no comorbidities, chances are your symptoms are going to be mild in general. Uh, if you do have comorbidities, then you have to be just a little bit more careful. People that have high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, those individuals, again, and, and I tell this to patients and or family members, just a little bit of an overshare here, but um, over the holidays, my siblings and their household actually all got oh. COVID, including my nine-month-old nine oh, wow. nephew. And because they were actually all healthy, their symptoms were very mild. So I was concerned about them, but because of knowing what I know, I wasn't as concerned as I would have been in comparison to when my other brother, by the way, again, still sharing a little bit, my brother Mark actually passed away from COVID back in the Philippines oh, last year. He, on the other hand, yeah, thank you. 
He, on the other hand, he had comorbidities. So for him, I knew the impact of COVID was going to be way worse considering of other factors that he was going through. Unlike my siblings recently, they were healthy, but got COVID anyways, even though they were actually vaccinated. So the fact that they were healthy, young, and already vaccinated uh, worked to their advantage because the symptoms were very minimal. Sherwin, I'm so I'm very sorry to hear about your loss. How old was your brother when when he died from COVID? My brother was actually only 46 years of age. That's very young. So, and this happened in the Philippines. In the Philippines, unfortunately, um, he he kind of got caught during the height of the pandemic. He was out there visiting his wife, and the wife was still living in the Philippines and he did not want to leave her to go back to the U.S. And unfortunately, in the area where we were at, he had yet to get vaccinated. And that's how COVID got him. And like I said earlier, he actually had comorbidities, which placed him at much higher risk. And at which point he actually succumbed to COVID. This must have been very, very hard for you and and the family. How are you all doing? I, I think, and thank you for that. But yes, I think we're actually doing pretty well. Um, I Again, because of the resources that we have. Uh, my sister and I are both in the field. My wife is also in the field. So we, we have that covered, fortunately. But um, obviously, it's very different when you're the one experiencing the loss. And for us, um, and, and I tell this to a lot of patients who unfortunately have had deaths in the family either related to COVID and or separately. But uh, what's worked for us has been to openly talk about the loss, uh, but not so much focus on the loss, but more so on the life that he had, which I think has been very beneficial for us. Uh, It's also gotten us a lot closer with my sister-in-law, who's still in the Philippines, but with plans to actually come out here and visit and possibly stay if she ends up enjoying it. So um, those are just some of the things. We actually had created a blog, uh, a memory website for him. Not create a memory website, but just something that actually would uh, remind us of the good things, positive things that we enjoyed uh, when he was still alive. Um, Just recently this month, we actually celebrated his birthday, his very first birthday that he missed because of his passing. So little things that, again, it doesn't take a whole lot of money to do, but again, just honoring the loved one to deceased and making sure to, uh, again, respecting the people that um, you've lost is perhaps one of the biggest things I can impart on people, especially if they've experienced something similar. Would you recommend something like that to families who have, uh, you know, lost, uh, who, who has experienced death in the family, a, a blog, a common space for them to, to share? Yeah, I think it's, it's a good space when you have people that may have known the deceased person and be able to share positive things about them, maybe pictures and or stories. Um, You could even do recordings and just kind of people talking about uh, what was the thing that you enjoyed most when spending with so-and-so. I think for the people that were left behind, it really just kind of gives it that reality of, wow, 
this person, my, for example, my brother, uh, was a very good person that touched a lot of people's lives. And that's what I want to remember him for versus the very last moments when he was uh, stricken with COVID. Well, thank you for sharing that, Sherwin. Um, I know it's not easy, especially this just happened very recently and, and, and uh, losing a brother. I, I could never imagine that. So thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. Let me bring up another topic related to COVID. Um, which vulnerable populations uh, would you consider to have been most adversely affected by COVID in, in our communities here in the U.S.? I think the ones that are homeless are probably the ones that are most affected by this. Uh, part of that is depending on when they were getting their vaccinations. Uh, oftentimes when you have um, people that are transients, they may not necessarily stay in one area. And unless they, had, they fit that group, they may not have necessarily received the vaccine sooner. Uh, and again, just the homeless population, unfortunately, and perhaps that's something that we can all work towards in improving resources, but they were the ones who I thought probably because of the nature of where they're at, could have received the vaccine a lot sooner, despite of whether they were high risk or not. But just the nature of homelessness, in my personal opinion, uh, they were the ones that could have received the vaccine a lot sooner. And when they did it, it was very hard to track. And depending on the migration, uh, you likely had seen people that may have infected other individuals. Uh, let me talk about telepsychiatry. So COVID-19 pandemic has transformed telepsychiatry from an alternative backup reserved for rural <laughs> and underserved settings to now the mainstream necessity used across the country. So what do you think, why do you think telepsychiatry is a necessary tool at the present and an essential component of psychiatric care in the future? I, I think uh, with telepsychiatry, it's evident that it's something that we are actually able to do uh, even pre-pandemic. And as someone who was looking at other places, uh, it's quite evident that it's not just something that's offered in rural areas in the U.S. Uh, it's always been something that's offered for people that are, may not be able to want to go in for um, actual office visits. And from what we've seen, the effectivity of um, telepsychiatry is actually the same as if the patient was actually to come in at the office. And just kind of give you a little bit of um, backstory here. Um, typically speaking, when your patients are coming in for appointments, they may be spending 15, 20, 30 minutes at most seeing their providers. And that could be a psychiatric nurse practitioner, a psychiatrist, and or any other parts or members of the healthcare team. Um, so with that 15 to 30 minute appointment, the amount of time that these individuals have to take when they make those appointments could be ranging from four hours or more. So a patient that's coming in for a 15, 20 minute follow-up will have to take a half day off from work just to be able to be seen for their visits, which again begs the question of, was that even really necessary? Is there something that we could have done more effectively instead of just 
losing that three plus hours just in preparation of and also commuting to your respective um, appointments. So, um, so do you use telepsychiatry in your practice, Sherwin? I do. Actually, I do both. I do hybrid. So I do have some patients that prefer to be seen in person. And when they do, they do have to come in wearing masks and I wear my mask. Uh, but the majority of my patients, especially those that are younger, are actually preferring telepsychiatry. For them. Uh, One of the biggest reasons is for what I just mentioned to you a few minutes ago, which is the convenience that it does offer, not having to worry about taking half day off from work just to be able to come in for uh, a follow-up appointment. Or for those individuals that are having difficulties with transportation, they are able to be seen in the comfort of their own home. Uh, for individuals that may not necessarily have um, access to X, Y, and Z, they could do it with what's um, available in front of them, which is computers or cell phones. Has the volume increased in telepsychiatry during the pandemic? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, we've seen a lot of patients that are actually now just wanting to be seen through telepsychiatry, although before they were very much resistant to the idea that I would be able to provide service just from a screen. But I think the benefits that it provides them uh, allows them and they've bought in the whole system. And many of them have actually voiced that they would like to continue on for as long as it's being allowed. And it sounds like it's something that will go on. And again, based on what we've seen, there's absolutely no reason why it shouldn't continue on. So for your patients, um, I, I, I'm guessing there's a range in the ages of patients that you see. Uh, how have they um, adapted to telepsychiatry? I, I could imagine that the younger people are more adept in using technology, how about the the older patients? You know, there's definitely a learning curve in telepsychiatry. And luckily enough, the system that we use at my practice are very commonly used and quite simple. Uh, on one of them, we use what's known as Doxy. And it literally is a link that's sent out to a patient in their cell phones or emails. They click, type their name, and wait to be seen. That's the extent of what they do. Um, in some practices, they use a Zoom, at which point individuals would need to have access to a Zoom account or even login, and then that's how they're seen. So it really just depends on what is the system that's being utilized by each uh, practice. And again, there will be some resistance and reservation with some people actually wanting telepsych versus in-person visits. And as clinicians, we have to be respectful of that while also maintaining safety for both our own and the patient. I see. I just want to go back to the topic about the homeless homeless um, community. Has there been a plight of improvement in that area, in that population? I, I, th you know, I think when uh, we actually had introduced the J&J one dose vaccine, I think that actually helped because um, the population did not have to worry about coming back uh, and they don't need to have a reminder for when would be I the see. next time that you get your second dose. Um, the issue was really more about getting that second vaccination. Um, oftentimes, again, just 
just the nature, unfortunately, of the homelessness. And uh, yeah, a lot of times, and you guys probably in your own roles in PNAA have seen the challenges faced by the homeless population. So what are some of the ways we can promote mental health during these challenging times? Um, there's actually several ways of doing this. And part of it is just making sure that we as a, as a community actually normalize the conversation about mental health. And I, I can speak to this and attest to it being someone who was born and raised in a Filipino household, where I think, again, perhaps it's cultural, perhaps it's just my family altogether, but uh, it's something that we rarely actually talked about. And I think nowadays, uh, social media has given a lot of people the platform to actually be open about their own struggles with mental health issues. And for some actually looking at social media influencers and where they're very much open to discussing what their uh, life has been with and after the fact receiving treatment has empowered a lot of people to actually do the same thing. Um, So part of it is just really having that open conversation. Uh, we also need to be very open. And again, when we don't talk about something, it's very difficult to actually address the issue. Um, then part of that is awareness. And if you're not going to talk about it, how, how would you know when to actually seek help if needed? And as I say to all of my patients, this is not a bad thing that you're coming in. This is fantastic because you are actually taking a big step towards making sure that you are healthy and really prioritizing mental health and that it is in fact part of your health altogether. Uh, We have this misconception that mental health is completely separate from your physical health, which really it isn't. Sorry, my... So really what we need to make sure is that we are again treating a patient holistically and that we are prioritizing both. Sherwin, you are the president of PNA California Orange County chapter. Um, as a president of a chapter, if the other chapters of PNAA would ask and say, and ask, what can we do to take care of our members, our nurses? Um, are there certain things that uh, chapter leaders could do to help their members, their PNAA members at their own chapter level? Yes, absolutely. Actually, this is one of the projects that I was working with um, PNAA, which is part of the Kabbalika program. Uh, With the help of everyone else in our group, uh, we actually came up with, or I came up with uh, a guideline so that each of the chapters can actually develop their own peer-to-peer support group. And we, we have several chapters now nationwide that are starting their programs. And I believe PNASC subchapter um, is also starting and had a, a meeting over the weekend. So that would be one way of doing it. And that's something that's a bit more formal. And again, because of the culture, of, because of the Filipino culture, some people may not necessarily want to jump in on that bandwagon and say, hey, I want to go to a group while we talk about mental health. Um, how I kind of go about and circumvent that is making sure that, yes, we're a group, but really just focus more so on self-care. And your self-care could be very different from the person next to you. But the fact is, 
Mindy's idea of self-care might be something that I would be open to. And when you guys are talking about it, you can actually help out each other and say, hey, you know what? Um, I've never thought about that before. Why not try it? And once you try it out, it may be something that you would love to move forward and continue doing. And that is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Sherwin Imperio and my co-host, Mindy Ofiana, our director and producer, Rodney Cajudo, Carol Robles, the PNAA Chair for Communications and Marketing, our advisor, PNAA Foundation President, Nancy Hoff, and our executive producers, PNAA President, Dr. Marie-Joy Garcia-Dia, and PNAA Executive Director, Carmina Bautista. Join us every Wednesday here on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising. See you next week. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement, CDC, RFA, IP 21-2106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC, HHS.